the simple but powerful insight of what I'm going to call relational knowledge, a fourth way of knowing, is that ultimate truth is known in and through relationship. It cannot, of course, be separated from what I have already said, but it is, for me, um, just a way of looking at the quest for knowledge from a slightly different angle. It is based on Jewish and Christian philosophy and theology, and uh, primarily on that of the, the great Jewish philosopher, mystic, and theologian Martin Buber, and also on John Bailey, the brilliant and yet completely down-to-earth professor of philosophy and theology at Edinburgh University in Scotland. Both Buber's book, I, Thou, and Bailey's Our Knowledge of God have had a major influence on my own thinking. Relational knowledge then recognizes that we are born and grow into adulthood in a community. We are not, as in the film Matrix, generated and grown as isolated units in a sterile machine by machines for consumption as energy by machines. It also recognizes, as in the Matrix, that nothing is more obvious than that real knowledge is a product of our relationships with other people. In fact, I come to know myself as a person first in relation to my mother, and then in my family, and finally in the larger community of people around me. I learned to be a person from persons. But I need to pause here for an important definition. In order to understand relational knowledge or relational epistemology and philosophers like Buber and Bailey, I need to explain the meaning of two words, subject and object. In philosophy, a subject, to put this rather simplistically, is a being who has self-consciousness or self-awareness and who observes, analyzes, acts upon, and or relates somehow to another, animate or inanimate entity, another person, idea, rock, or octopus, or whatever, which is the object. So philosophers and theologians are highly concerned with questions like, how does the subject know the object? Is the subject or object more real? What is the nature of the subject? Is it pure consciousness? Is it intuitive knower? Is it observer? And what is the nature of the object? Is it immaterial reality? Is it mere illusion? It is, is it a spiritual substance? Is, is it just a projection of our own thoughts as we attempt to order time and space uh, attempt to make sense of things in order to hold on to our sanity. Now, the customary way to answer these questions is to say that we know about the external world directly through the senses. My five physical senses provide me with knowledge of my morning cup of coffee, knowledge of both the cup 
and the coffee in it. But other people we know indirectly and by analogy through things like their gestures and facial expressions. And we do, in fact, learn a great deal that is useful in this way. We learn to brush our teeth, fix a leaky faucet, or sell a Mercedes Maybach GLS or a Tesla Roadster to someone who can't really afford a Chevy Impala or a Fiat 500. In the latter case, we will, of course, have treated the purchaser as if he or she were a toothbrush or a leaky faucet, or perhaps like the wrench we use to fix the leaky faucet. That is, we will have treated them or related to them as an object, as an it, and not as a person at all. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Boomer and Bailey thought that the popular theory of knowledge, the theory that we learn about the external world directly through our senses and then about others only indirectly, misses something. What it misses is that as individuals, we have no self except in relation to other persons. They said we are only able to infer the meaning of the actions of other people. We are only able to understand them because we have first experienced or encountered other persons. I watched a documentary on the horse whisperer Buck Brenneman, who was the consultant for the Robert Redford film Horse Whisperer. There is a, a depressing scene in that documentary in which Buckman tells a woman she needs to put her stallion down. As I remember, the mayor, the stallion's mother, uh, had died when he was born on out on the ranch uh, on a freezing Montana night. And this woman took this orphan fold into her house and fed him formula from a bottle. But, in fact, she kept him there for some time, but as an adult, uh, he was a vicious animal, a, a, a serious danger to anyone who came near him. He had been brought to one of uh, Branneman's horse clinics to see if there was anything that could be done, but in the end, there was Branneman on camera, with his characteristic humility and goodwill and soft manner, admitting defeat and advising this woman to destroy her horse before it killed someone. Now, if I understand Buck Branneman's explanation of what had gone wrong, it is this. With her kind intention, in her love for horses, and for this horse in particular, this woman had deprived the horse, had deprived him as a foal and then as a young stallion of the opportunity to learn how to be a horse. The only way a horse can learn to be a horse is from other horses. And our knowledge of what it means to be a person comes from our relationships with other persons. So what Booper and Bailey proposed is an epistemology that can be called relational knowing or relational knowledge. 
what Buber famously referred to as I-thou knowing. Buber said there are two ways of relating, I-thou and I-it. In a simple I-it relationship, there are two entities, a subject and an object. The subject, say, for example, um, myself, is is, uh, uh, is the I, and the object, say, my cup of coffee, is the it. The object, the it, is not seen as something valuable in and of itself, but as something that uh, exists only to satisfy my own wants, whims, desires, and needs. So, for example, I look at the Amazon forest, and I see it as lumber, lumber to be harvested and sold at enormous profit. In that case, I see the Amazon forest as an object, as an it. However, as already noted, even people may be related to as objects, uh, things like the Amazon force or like my uh, cup or the coffee in it, things to be used, set aside, managed, or discarded. The I-thou relation, on the other hand, is a direct knowing, not indirect. The I-thou relationship is one of mutuality, directness, presence, reciprocity, intensity, transparency, and ineffability. An I-thou relation is subject to subject rather than subject to object. So rather than looking at a mother who is living at a shelter as a, as a, a homeless woman with a child, that is a, a burden, I can instead see her as a mother and as a woman with a name and a personal story to share with hopes and dreams and fears. That is, I can come not only to see her as a human being, but to experience her, meet her, encounter her as a person. One of my most valued epiphanies occurred one night in Amarillo, Texas, when I was attending West Texas State University over 50 years ago, when I heard a speaker say that a great realization of his had been that his wife was not a bar of soap, that his wife was not a bar of soap, that she had her own fears and hopes and dreams just as he did. With those words, I saw more deeply, saw with life-changing clarity that the way to the sort of marital intimacy I hoped for, the way to the kind of marital love that I longed for required knowing Brenda as a person as a thou. 
Buber actually indicates that this I-thou encounter can, in, can occur even with inanimate objects. Human beings, he thought, have the capacity to limit or to expand the extent to which they see anyone or anything as, uh, as a subject rather than as an object, as a thou rather than as an it. Uh, we do this all the time. Uh, one, uh, one of the most obvious examples is with our pets, our, our dogs and our cats. We, we relate to them not as things or as objects, but as themselves, subjects. And they reciprocate. So, Boomer said, we, can, we, we have this power to, uh, to expand uh, our experience of the I-Thou uh, kind of relationship of, of, of encounter, and that we can do that to, uh, to the extent that we, can, that we can even practice it with inanimate objects. Instead of seeing the Amazon forest, for example, as marketable lumber worth billions, it is possible to see it as a living and life-giving. Uh, uh, to see it as a poem of divine wonder. In Desert Solitaire, Abby Edward tells how when he stood in the desert at Arches National Monument in Utah, uh, gaping at the spectacle of rock and cloud and sky and space, he was overwhelmed with a desire to know it all. He wrote this of his desert longing. I was there not only to evade for a while the clamor and filth and compulsion of the cultural apparatus, but also to confront immediately and directly, if possible, the bare bones of existence, the elemental and fundamental, the bedrock which sustains us. I, I wanted to be able to look into a juniper tree, a piece of quartz, a vulture, a spider, and see it as it is in itself, to meet God face to face. All real living, said Martin Buber, is meeting. As noted previously, we, we really don't need anyone to tell us this is true. Our greatest sense of being alive and that all is well comes when our Intimacy with another person is deepest and most complete. Our moments of, of greatest satisfaction are those moments uh, that Buber and Bailey described as an I-thou meeting or encounter. Bailey thought that the I-thou encounter had about it the quality of a demand, of something being asked or required of us. If I understand him correctly, I would probably say it has the characteristic or attribute of a calling. When Viktor Frankl, the Jewish psychiatrist who survived 
four years in Auschwitz, thought about what had contributed to his survival in the Holocaust. One of the things he said was that he, that he, that he learned not to ask what he expected of life, but what life expected of him. But Doug Hammarskjöld perhaps furnishes a less dramatic, although more accessible exam example. There are probably not many people today who know who Doug Hammarskjöld was or the richness of his legacy of service to humanity. Hammarskjöld was a Swedish economist. His family of uh, origin included many prominent politicians, religious leaders, and civil servants. He was recognized at a young age as an outstanding and already successful Swiss, uh, Swedish public servant. After the horrific devastation of World War II, he played a major part in the development of the Marshall Plan and the rebuilding of Europe. He became Secretary General of the United Nations in 1953, serving until 1961 with a courage, integrity, and expertise that created the standard by which his successors continue to be measured. He worked tirelessly to make the United Nations what it was meant to be, an instrument of world peace and help for humanity. Hammarskjöld died in a plane crash on a mission to negotiate peace during the violent 1960s Congo crisis. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize posthumously. After his death, his journal, Markings, was discovered. Markings is a beautiful stream of spiritual consciousness sort of book, uh, the insightful musings of someone devoted to serving the good of humanity. With that background, and in light of what you know of the I-Thou encounter, listen to this quote taken from Hammarskjöld's Markings. I don't know who or what put this question. I don't even know when it was put. I don't even remember answering. But at some moment, I did answer yes to something or someone. And from that hour, I was certain that existence is meaningful and that, therefore, my life in self-surrender had a goal. Here, then, I think is an instance in which we can see with some clarity the I-Thou encounter as a call, as requiring a response, a, a meeting, an, an encounter with another, a genuine relationship, which by definition means an, an initiating or giving and receiving and a responding. Whether there is such a thing as I-Thou knowing, and relational knowledge, uh, whether there is such a thing as a as relation a, a relational epistemology, is a far larger question in the quest for knowledge than what most people normally realize. 
if what is really real is material, if everything can be reduced to a physical process, if the deepest sadness and the highest joy I feel is entirely due to a biochemical process in my brain, then I am obviously very much mistaken, as were Buber and Bailey and a good many others, in asserting that I know what I know through, in, and by my relationships. Of course, the possibility of being wrong about anything is always present. Nevertheless, it is among my deepest convictions that the ultimate nature of reality is personal and relational, and that that is a way to true knowledge and wisdom, and that makes all the difference to and in everything. Well, that is enough for now. In episode seven, the next episode, I will take up the question of revelation as a way of knowing, or perhaps a fifth facet of knowing.